Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday. Hey Molly, Sunday. how you doing? Happy Sunday. 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 Happy Sunday, everybody. Enjoy yeah. uh, your day of rest and what I'm calling our day of learning because we mm. have VC Sunday School today. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. we're going to talk about uh, conflicts for VCs. How do you manage uh, meeting with a dozen companies in the same vertical and some of them being competitors? And then how do you manage... Uh, when one company in your portfolio then pivots their idea and then maybe becomes competitive with another company in your portfolio. And can VCs invest in competitive companies? We're going to hash it out for about 15 minutes. Yeah, it's good stuff. When do you have to put up that big, big wall? And then, then I explore, I'm very excited about landing this interview with Shale Khan of Energy Impact Partners. He also hosts the pretty popular among climate nerds like me podcast called Catalyst. We're talking about the core challenges of deep decarbonization. It's nerdy. It's a nerdy climate tech mm. talk. All right. It's going to be a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by iTrust Capital. Did you know that you can invest in crypto through your retirement account and still get the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA? Visit itrust.capital slash twist to start investing today. Cyvitar. Implementing cybersecurity for your startup can feel overwhelming and expensive, but it doesn't have to be that way. Cyvitar is startup-friendly, fully managed, all-inclusive cybersecurity subscriptions. Twist listeners get their first two months free at cyvitar.ai slash twist. And lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io. Go to lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. Molly Happy and Sunday. I, we set our alarms for 5 a.m. And uh, we just made our coffee. We did yoga. We went to Bikram uh, Hot Yoga. Mm -hmm. and, farmer's uh, Market. Farmer's yeah. Market. Hit the Farmer's Market. And uh, mm -hmm. here we are. We took a, got ourselves glowed up, took a shower, got the hair set, and we're ready to do VC Sunday School for you. We give up our Sundays for you. No, we tape it on Fridays. You have a day of rest. We do not. There's a really big fly in here. Um, um, I'm just so, going to keep it cool. So everybody loves VC Sunday School. We're going to make these into a super cut. So you get them all at one time at some point, put it on the YouTube channel or something. But uh, what have you been dealing with the past week or two, Molly? What have you been thinking about as you're yeah. now in your fourth, fourth month of investing? You had your first climate syndicate, uh, the syndicate.com slash climate, which was, I think, 2x oversubscribed. Yep. Great feeling, great company, real legit great company. company. Great outcome. Uh, great outcome. That's nice for us to slide in a quick milli or two into a company. And we have one of uh, the companies you found in the accelerator. Mm -hmm. So things are uh, heating up here for uh, Molly in her first year of venturing into venture capital. What's your question this week? It's all happening. And this is like, hmm. uh, and now I have reached embarrassment of riches stage, hmm. oh, which really? gets me to this Explain. fundamental question of what the hell do you do? when you're talking to competing companies. Mm. And I know that this is, leads to, especially in an early stage, this big question of like, what do you, how do, is it, can you invest in, or should sure. you invest in companies that do the same thing? And even more importantly and saliently, where is the, where's the line? Like at what point does it feel, is it unethical to right. be sort of down the road farther with one company, but talking to one that does the same thing and being like, wait, I know things about both your business plans and yikes. Yeah, okay. So, um, the feeling for a founder when you invest in a company that's directly competitive is rightfully, uh, annoying. So if you invested in Uber, you don't get to invest in Lyft, you invest in Lyft, you don't get to invest in Uber has been how the Valley's always worked. And there's a very mm -hmm. practical reason for this. They're competitors, right? And if you're on at both board meetings or have information from both, well, it's sort of like you're seeing, uh, you know, the pregame coaching session for the Warriors and the pregame coaching session for LeBron at Cleveland, like you have uh, this information. And then who are you rooting for to win? And, and how do you manage that? So in a venture capital firm, you won't do this. Now, sometimes in a venture capital firm, you will have a pivot. So some company starts, they say, hey, we're going to make enterprise software. Another company says we're going to make consumer software, but they're both addressing, you know, adjacencies, you know, they're both in education. Mm -hmm. So one's doing an education startup where they teach people math, the other one's doing a platform for teachers uh, to teach math. So they don't actually touch consumers. Okay, two different businesses, but they're kind of adjacent. Now, what if one business works, one does it, the other one pivots to the other one's model, 
that is uh, a unique situation. And what you have to do in that situation is uh, have a discussion with the founders and say, Molly's going to be on this board, Jake Howell's going to be on this board. There is a uh, what we call the Chinese wall in the business, a firewall. Chinese yeah. wall is an acceptable term, by the way. Uh, it is a tribute to the Great Wall of China, the greatest wall <laughs> it's ever an built. Wall, a really it's big a, one. Yeah. It's actually legit. You do yeah. not have to cancel me. It's actually a compliment. I looked it up. Chinese people are quite uh, delighted when you use the Chinese wall to mean a strong wall between two locations. Uh, so, uh, in this case, you're saying the wall needs to be that big and that strong and that tall right. and, and that, that is, long. Right. Yes, it needs to be the best wall in the world. Yes, it's a compliment. <laughs> Did you see so, that fly? It's the size of a hummingbird. Um, yeah. So, so does that it, make sense? It, it definitely an easy does. Answer. Okay. So sometimes, but so then there is a point. It seems like where you just sort of have to say, like, listen, I was talking to both of you. One of you moved to diligence, one of you didn't, we got to stop talking. We okay, break so out. now before you've invested, it is well within the right of a venture capitalist to meet with the 10 people doing mathematical education on the internet in this example. Mm -hmm. So they met with Brilliant, they met with Khan Academy, Khan Academy is a nonprofit, but you get the idea. They met with 10 different companies and then they placed the bet on the one they like most. The thing you obviously would not do and would be career ending, unethical and just silly would be to send the materials of one company to the to the of the nine companies to the one company who won. Sure. Yeah. On a practical basis. Um, there's probably nothing that proprietary of these businesses, most people want to believe that their business has some huge proprietary ideas that are not obvious. The truth is, smart entrepreneurs going into the business of math teaching people math. There's a finite set of ideas and and features and they're all probably on a list somewhere so when people are like oh my god they stole my idea it's like number one <laughs> you really think you're the only person with the idea that to have yeah. math tutors online there's probably nothing that major there and then also it's probably on your website your ex-employees are probably interviewing at the other competitor and telling them all your plans anyway unethical but probably not illegal uh depending on their um uh non-competes and agreements mm -hmm. so the fact is, it's probably the information in those early stages is not that important. The second thing that's not that important, um, uh, the second thing that's practical is, as a VC, why would you risk it? Right. Why would you risk it? If it's right. the information is not that important, why would you risk it? And there's ways to, um, to mitigate against this. So what I've seen VCs do, uh, I'm not saying I would do this, but if they met with a company, and they met, let's say they met with the two mathematics companies in this and one of them had this great idea math teachers in america teaching ma uh, math students in china and they get to do it off hours and there's actually a company that does this i forgot the name of it where they matched american student uh, i'm sorry chinese students who wanted to learn english and math with american teachers mm -hmm. it was a really cool company um so you look at that company all you would have to do as the vc is to say have you heard of this tutoring company you don't have to send them the deck mm -hmm. say, have you heard of this company and point to a story about them in crunchbase nothing illegal about that nothing unethical about that you're just pointing them in a direction right uh, and there's much better ways to get corporate information like looking at the job hiring board who are they hiring for that kind of tells the story right that's how people found out apple was you know or confirmed apple was working on project titan because you could see all the people either changing right. their linkedins or uh, the job descriptions. So there's much easier ways to do a corporate espionage. Now, so those that's how it works in a fund. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are I mean, other I funding sources like, that are mm -hmm. different. Uh, and we can talk about those. But any questions on that with the fund follow up on that when funds? No, I mean, are it seems like definitely. It seems very clear that you don't invest in competitors. That's just obvious. That would be a bad business yeah. call. Mm -hmm. I think what is less clear is when you kind of go like, listen, I think, I guess you just start giving a polite no in that case either way. If you're mm -hmm. like, look, I I like this one company better. You, there's two of you. They're virtually identical. I like this one better or they're farther along or they meet our, they're in our Goldilocks zone and you're not. I, I think what I'm still a little unclear on is when do I say company A, we picked company B or company A, I got to bow out now because I don't want to put myself in a position where I might be thinking about this too much like a journalist, but. I think I you just, you, you, it's always important to say, we're not going to invest at this time. You're yeah. not under obligation to say you pick the other company um, because it's that company's job. This is a great question. Actually, I never even thought of it. 
but thinking out loud here, it's not your job as the investor to announce the fundraising for the startup you invested in. Right. Some VCs get high on their own supply and they write their own press releases. We invested in Calm. We invested in Uber. We don't do that. Some people are a little thirsty and they're just, you know, uh, making these announcements. And I've seen people make these announcements. They invested in a company and they never thought, well, I wonder if the founder of the company was going to do a press tour about the announcement and they steal the thunder or they write a press. I'm sometimes I'm the lead investor in a company and we're the lead investor. We put in a million dollars. And I know some other fund put in 100 and they were the last money in and they just were filling in 100 of the $3 million round. We led the round mm-hmm. at a million. And they write their own press release and they, they're quoting people about how great the company is. And I'm like, you have barely have any skin in this game. You're just cool. following on, you know, you were whatever percent of the round, 2% of the round. Like, so it's a little weird. That so, raises actually yeah. a whole other question because sure. I literally was just thinking today, there's a VC in my same space who's mm-hmm. very e- effective at using LinkedIn and being mm-hmm. like, this is why our company invested in X. Yes, our, I used to do fund. that. I, w- I wrote the famous why we invested $378,000 in Calm because I wanted to explain it and get them some press. But I asked the founder if it's okay. And I showed the founder, Alex, uh, you know, the, the post before I posted it. Obviously. Right. Do you think it's worth my time to like, uh, get a little magic assistant to <laughs> write those up for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, you write it yourself. You're a good writer, Molly. And yeah, I'll, well, who I'll, has time no, for that? with this, well, you could I'm writing 400 it words. It wouldn't you take do. very long for crying yeah, out loud. 400, 800 like words. Up. I would do it. I, w- yeah. I would think you should do it, actually. I think it'd be good discipline. Cool. Um, okay. Because if you that. just do, you know, the com.com one, you can see my, and then people have on record my thinking, which mm-hmm. when you have the victory, is pretty great. But you do want to have the awesome. founder buy in uh, when you're speaking about their company because yeah. they have messaging they want to do. If you are listening to this podcast, I'm betting you already have some exposure to crypto. Certainly, we all talk about it enough. And it turns out you can now invest in crypto through your retirement account. That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell digital assets from a crypto IRA. This means you'll actually get the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. And iTrust Capital has over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies to invest in. Unlike the stock market, you can actually buy and sell 24 hours a day. That's part of the whole disruptive crypto thing. If that's what you want to do, just plan your retirement all night long. I mean, actually, that makes me want to plan my retirement all night long. iTrust is easy to use and only takes a few minutes to create an account. And setting up an IRA is free. And iTrust's fees are low, just 1% per crypto transaction. So visit itrust.capital slash twist to start investing today. That's itrust.capital slash twist. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees do apply. And cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with a risk of loss. Itrust Capital Inc. does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, and the answer to when you should cut it, when you should give a no, it's like, if you move one company into diligence and you're talking to a competitor, you got to say no to the first one. Oh, of course. Yes. That's the moment. That's like the point when you're just like, this one's there, this one's not. When you move to diligence, Molly, you're basically only moving to diligence if you plan on making the investment, um, is the general hygiene. So that's kind of another question into and of itself is when do you move to diligence? And then if you do do diligence, are you obligated to invest? And when can you back out with diligence? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is you can back out for any reason until you sign the deal. You can leave bad feelings. If you do a massive diligence, it all turns out great. And then you back out of the deal and you say, well, in diligence, it wasn't what we felt and you don't have a really good reason. Yeah. If you go into diligence and they say we have these five customers and they have four, by all means, like they misrepresented 20% of the customer base. Right. or the number one customer or things aren't what they seem. Uh, that's why diligence exists, right? And so I think everybody understands that. Yeah. If you move to diligence, yes, I think stop talking to other people because you're in all likelihood going to do the decision. Totally. Uh, and Easy. then diligence, we made a rule. I love a well, rule. Exactly. Oh, just, you know, a heuristic, you know, you, you could, be, you could bend it. That's a good word. Um, some people give you all the information before you do diligence and diligence is like, okay, we just need to see your incorporation documents and your IP assignments and just make sure there are signed documents in a folder somewhere. Yep. So our LPs are protected. And we do our diligence. Other times, like asking people to see their P&Ls for the last, you know, 24 months, uh, that might only happen in diligence, right? So what gets into the diligence folder and how quickly founders give them over is not a perfect science. 
yep. uh, as well. Now, there are two exceptions or three exceptions in today's world for funding. If you run an accelerator, there is no uh, belief that you need to have exclusivity by category in any way and not have competitors because the companies are so nascent, they're figuring out product market fit. So why Combinator launch accelerated tech stars? They'll accept 10 different meditation apps, 10 different Airbnb, you know, swings at the bat with different flavors. They might not want to accept somebody who just photocopies the site because mm -hmm. that's kind of lame, but not because of some rule. And then there are platforms. So AngelList, the syndicate, our platform, Republic, Seed Invest, none of them are under the obligation as a platform to be non-competitive. So with our syndicate and with our accelerator, we don't have exclusivity, but with our funds, we do. Um, and then there's a, just a practical basis of anytime there's any kind of conflicts, you know, I don't, yeah. I will disengage from one of the two companies and then have you or Ashley, Jackie, Savino, Kelly, whoever take over the board seat for that other company. Totally. If Love we it. have a board seat. So anyway, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward approach. Um, and communication is important. And this is why Ryan Breslow's uh, claim that Stripe collected all those investors in order to block them from investing in the one that was the most um, uh, honest piece of that. Uh, you know, and some of it was a little bit of silliness, but that, that actually is directionally correct. I mean, yeah. Uber, uh, Airbnb and others collected investors. And it was very clear. If you invested it in Uber, you weren't going to invest in Lyft and vice versa. If you had invested in Lyft, you were never going to be on team Uber. Uh, and, and rightfully so. Right. It's a good uh, lockup strategy. Yeah. It is a brilliant lockup strategy. Mm -hmm. A brilliant lockup strategy. All right. I love it. Well, there you go. Right. VC Sunday School learning together once again. Uh, and now it's time for this week in climate startups. Who and do you have an interview with? Tell me. I'm pretty excited about this one. Okay, I was happy to I land this that. because, again, yeah. like I'm in this tiny world where there's these big names. Jason Jacobs we had on. And the other big name in this space is Shale Khan, who's uh -huh. a partner at Energy Impact Partners. And also hosts a podcast called Catalyst, which cool. is really deep climate stuff, specifically around this. Con he invests and talks about this concept of deep decarbonization. So Whoa. it's very like frontier hmm. of climate tech. It's a really deep hard carbonization stuff. as opposed to decarbonization. Yes. Deep decarbonization. De deep decarbonization as opposed to just deep plain deep. old decarbonization. Exactly. That plain old oh. decarbonization. Fine. Yeah, any, look any old forward to hearing that, that explanation. Hydrogen. Fusion, total Got systemic it. transfer transformation. This is energy These impact are the partners. Marys. These are the super impacts. Yeah. And this is a fund energy impact partners with the $2 billion to put behind. I, I like that. You know, it's like some stuff. people are trying to do the blocking and tackling. Some people are looking to do incremental and some people are looking to go swing for the fences. In your opinion, yeah. Um, what's the best strategy or do all strategies uh, have validity to them? I, you know me to be a fan of every possible solution. What I would say, and I like to see climate tech investors talk about, is avoiding the FOMO effect. Like uh, just because, explain. and I think uh, Shale sort of mentioned this, like just because everybody is into hydrogen mm. right now doesn't mean they shouldn't still be looking at, I don't know, wave energy, right? Or something that's somewhat less popular. So don't, because if we all follow the crowds to the same exact solutions, right. we'll miss something. Yes, so. there is a marketplace of ideas, best ideas win, but sometimes you do get a lemming like effect. And then you get a category that's overfunded, and then other ones are underfunded. But the great thing about capitalism is then that's an opportunity for somebody to then go fund that vertical without any competitors. Exactly. So, so be yeah. the one who notices, you know, yes. the budding vertical off to the side over here while the lemmings are over there. Do There's like a nice blinders on. juicy slug or whatever lemmings yep. ate. No <laughs> blinders is what I would tell people. Don't put any no blinders, blinders on. You know, you want to you want to never underestimate anyone or any idea, you know, exactly. give give each idea a little bit of uh, thought and give every founder, uh, you know, your full attention, because man, I've seen people, you know, just meander for years. And then all of a sudden, it's like, Oh, yeah, by the way, I, I found a gold mine. And I, I you want to be partners on the gold mine? And I'm like, Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> You've been great. wandering in the forest and you found a diamond mine. Okay, let's go. All right, great job. Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Sunday, Enjoy. everybody. Shale Khan is a partner at Energy Impact Partners and host of the podcast Catalyst, one of 
I shouldn't admit this considering the industry I'm in, but one of the very few podcasts I listen to regularly. I'm excited to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that is, uh, that's high praise. Thank you very much. It's, you know, time is a precious resource in the world. And it's a really, it's a great show. So I'm thrilled that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I want to start by with, with sort of two basic questions. How, how, how did you come to this? How did you come to this world of climate tech and how um, long have you been leading these efforts at Energy Impact Partners? Yeah, well, so I've, I came to what we now call climate tech, but back when I first got into it, it was definitely not called climate tech yet. At that time, it was, I don't know, clean tech, or this is possibly even before the clean tech boom. So I, I first got into it in college, actually. Um, I was a psychology major, and I, I was studying all sorts of unrelated things, but I ended up randomly taking a couple of courses one uh, that was called Strategic Natural Resources that was like an introduction to the global energy ecosystem. And we read Dan Jurgen's books and I just like learned how energy worked and found myself weirdly fascinated with it. And then what really cemented it is I, I took this evening course that was taught by a former Southern California Edison, the utility uh, government affairs executive who was like moonlighting as a college professor for whatever reason. And he was teaching a class on public utilities regulation and he would walk into class, uh, it was like a 7 to 10 p.m. once a week thing. He'd walk into class, he would chug an O'Doul's, slam it on the ground, and then spend three hours talking about public utility regulation. And like, I was the only person in that class who was interested in it. Uh, but I found it super fascinating. So I just discovered this weird fascination initially just with energy uh, that has then like expanded beyond that into all these complex markets and ecosystems that drive uh, 50 gigatons of global emissions that we create every year. And uh, early in my career, I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I will try this because I know I'm interested in it. Uh, but someday I'll probably get bored of it and want to do something else. And then fast forward, it's been 15 or so years and I've never gotten bored of it. And in fact, I find it more interesting uh, as time goes on. So it's all I've ever done is what we would now, now deem climate tech, but I've done a bunch of different things within it. Um, and the EIP version of it, where I am now uh, on the investor side, I'm four years into that journey. So I joined EIP in early 2018. Here's a problem a lot of startups face. They need cybersecurity, but they don't have the staff to implement it or to manage it. So if your startup is overwhelmed with thousands of different services and you're looking for a simple and cost-effective starting point, Cyvatar makes cybersecurity effortless for startups and SMBs. They have all-inclusive subscriptions that you can cancel anytime and solutions for your business so you can close more deals, get compliant faster, and gain customer trust. And they are a preventative service, not a reactionary one. This means they find problems before they happen, not after. Cyvatar offers all-inclusive, fully managed cybersecurity as a service, a free platform to analyze and report on your cybersecurity, a member experience team that ensures satisfaction, flexible payment plans that you can cancel anytime, and they can get you up and running in 60 days or less. So here is your call to action. You can use Cyvatar's freemium version right now at no cost. But if you want to upgrade, you can get your first two months free at cyvatar.ai slash twist. I'll spell it one more time for you. Get your pens out, get your phone out and get ready to type C-Y-V-A-T-A-R dot A-I slash twist. I was reaching over to my bookshelf to grab this book because I feel like you must be one of the few people who has read the I've Energy read and Civilization Vaclav yeah. Smil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, As it's, you can it's, see, I made it like this far. <laughs> yeah. It's not the easiest read. I will say Dan Jurgen's stuff is at least more readable. And there's some other ones that I really like that are like big compendiums that are actually easy to read. Vaclav's stuff is like very cerebral, I think. And also... Very. Uh, it's very it's very historical. I feel like he doesn't actually appreciate the pace of change that we are seeing now. Okay, I appreciate that. I feel let off the hook with respect to that particular book. Um, so you currently lead. I want to. I'm going to sort of like start with the firm and then come around to the podcast. We'll go all over the place a little bit here. But so you're currently leading these efforts at what you're calling deep decarbonization, investing at the frontier of climate tech. And and I read a, a good post where you sort of defined that as five core challenges. Talk to me about what you mean when you say deep decarbonization, and then we can dig into some of those challenges. Yeah. So the fundamental premise here is um, that globally, we need to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century or earlier. I mean, I think 
anybody in this sector would agree that that is the bare minimum that we need to achieve to mitigate the calamity of climate change um, in any significant fashion. Getting to net zero means there's a lot to do to get there, right? As I said, we're at whatever it is, 50 gigatons, 50 billion tons of annual emissions of greenhouse gases uh, this year, and we need to get that to zero on net. Um, So there's a bunch of stuff that we could do today using technologies that are commercial and mature and have been deployed at scale and just needed to be deployed at much greater scale. Take wind and solar, for example, is the the clear, obvious examples of that. Um, But that's not going to get us nearly all the way there for a variety of reasons. So deep decarbonization to me is solving the next set of problems. What are the things that once we've solved the very first challenges of decarbonizing our global economy that are then going to be faced after that? And that can be both you know, kind of solving the rest of the problem in electricity, wind and solar can get you a good chunk of the way there. What happens? How do you get the rest of the way to 100% clean, reliable, ubiquitous, affordable electricity? But it's also, how do we solve the problem of decarbonizing all of these other sectors? You know, electricity is uh, 25% of end use energy demand. What do we do with the other 75%? And energy itself is not all global emissions. There's emissions from other sectors too. So deep decarbonization is just, you know, the simplest version of it is like solving the biggest, thorniest problems of climate change. Right. And then how big, just as a level set, how big is energy impact partners? Are there other parts of the energy puzzle that other partners are trying to solve or is it just you? No. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're bigger than just this effort. So energy impact partners in total is a venture capital firm with a little under $3 billion under management in in total across a number of different funds with different strategies, both in North America and in Europe. Um, and the thing that makes EIP kind of unique and that unifies everything that we do across strategies is our LP base, which is we have about uh, two thirds of our capital comes from a coalition of over 40 large strategic investors, big industrial companies, basically energy companies, mobility and transportation, built environment, technology, et cetera. And so EIP has this kind of unique model that we've we've honed over seven years to work with these big strategics and use our investing capabilities and the visibility that we get through uh, the work that we do to try to help them move faster toward decarbonization and digitization advancement of their own technologies. Um, so we have a number of different funds with different strategies within that. And my little chunk of that is this deep decarbonization effort. Got it. Can you tell us who some of those strategics are? Sure. Yeah. A bunch of them are public. Um, not all of them, but you know, many of the largest utilities in North America. So companies like Excel, uh, which is in Colorado and Minnesota, generally Southern company, which has territory in the Southeast of the U S, uh, Avista, Alliant, MG&E, uh, you know, Fortis, which has like 10 utilities, some big ones in Europe, like EDF, uh, and a bunch of others in Europe. And then in a separate from just the utilities, we've got, uh, you know, big real estate companies. We've got Microsoft on the technology side. We've got Enterprise, the rental car company. So it's actually a fairly wide array of different strategics. Gotcha. So they serve as obviously like a built-in customer base for some of these investments, but presumably not the only. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. I mean, you can think of it as like, we we try to bring the value as if you, when we invest in a company, we're bringing the value as if you had 40 strategic investors in your cap table, but without any of the burdens that having a strategic investor puts on your cap table, right? So we're not driven by strategic demands, but we can deliver all the value that that a corporate VC would have. Awesome. Does that change any of your otherwise traditional LP structure? Like, do they have a longer timeline? Do you get any flexibility there? Are you still trying to operate within that 10-year horizon? We're operating in a traditional venture capital model. You know, everything about us is is traditional financial investor. The only exception to that is in my fund, the deep decarbonization fund, we have a 15-year fund instead of a, a 10-year fund. Um, gotcha. And that is specifically has nothing to do really with our LP base and much more to do with the types of things that we want to invest in and how long we want to be able to ride with them as they as they come to market. Some of these things are going to take a long time. Others will happen sooner. But we think that the real sort of big magnitude impact is more on a 10 to 15 year horizon. So most of our investments, we don't expect to hold nearly that long, but we wanted to give ourselves that kind of flexibility so that we can make investments in things like nuclear fusion and decarbonizing steel and some of these really big categories. Yeah, totally. Um, How big is your fund, the deep decarbonization fund? 
Yeah, so we're, uh, we launched it a little over a year ago, and we'll do the final close on it in a few months. So the target size of the fund is $350 million, and we're most of the way there now. Gotcha. I, so sort of double congratulations are in order on your new fund and your new baby, right? Like not if you don't want to talk about that, we'll take that out. But <laughs> I just remembered as you were talking, I was like, oh, you've got these two big, you're birthing two things right now. Oh, man. Well, I didn't, I, I personally <laughs> didn't birth either of them, which has uh, made my life certainly easier. But yeah, thank you. I We have a two-month-old son uh, and I have a 15-month-old fund. <laughs> <laughs> and both need roughly equal amounts of attention. <laughs> I mean, currently it leans toward the sun over the fund, but I, I would hope, hope that that I would changes. Hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not a lot of sleep either way. Yeah, that's exactly right. They, <laughs> they both cause me to lose sleep for very different reasons. Um, well, let's talk about the the five core challenges, because I think this is it sort of it seems like what it does is double as your thesis, right? Or at least your sort of set of operating funnels, which is um, to sort of quickly sum up low cost, abundant, reliable, ubiquitous, zero carbon electricity tackling big industrial emitters, solving transportation, no pressure, building a carbon management industry from near scratch, and then decarbonizing Maslow's basic needs. Is it fair to say that this is sort of like your operating thesis? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the other way to think about it, it, in some ways, uh, those five core challenges are really just a fancy way of describing the big buckets of greenhouse gas emissions. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Climate change, in my mind, and climate tech, this category that we've decided is a category, is in some ways really, really complicated because it's not a sector in the way that lots of other sectors are. It is actually just a problem that we have across most of the big sectors of the economy. And there's not a lot in common with the solutions across a lot of those sectors, except that they're solving for the same problem, which is tons of CO2 equivalent. Um, but in some ways, it's also relatively simple because the emissions that we have globally basically come from five sectors, which is energy, transportation, buildings, food and agriculture, and industry. Uh, and so those are the five problems we need to solve. And then you can just add a sixth, which is we need to build this carbon management ecosystem, capture, removal, sequestration, utilization from scratch. So I think of those as being the sort of five and a half strategies within our fund. uh, And each of one of them represents sort of a different problem set that you can tackle. When you're scaling your startup quickly, hiring engineers can slow you down like nothing else. Don't I know it? Well, here's some good news. Lemon.io will find you the perfect candidate in 48 hours. What's Lemon.io, you ask? Well, they're a marketplace of engineers from Europe. They're going to match you with a candidate within 48 hours. And if it doesn't work out, they will replace the developer right away. They test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. And guess what? When you hire in a European time zone, you'll have your developers working 24-7. What a competitive advantage. So launch portfolio founder Drew Fabricant, he said Lemon.io was a game changer for his startup Scout, which is a lead gen platform. Drew was under the gun to hire a developer with a very specific skill set, and Lemon.io delivered a great candidate, and they were a pleasure to work with. Not only did Drew find exactly what he was looking for, but Lemon also delivered them a second engineer just as fast. So if you could use a full-time or part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to Lemon.io slash twist. That's lemon.io slash twist, and you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with a developer. Um, tell me a little more about carbon management industry, because it it, you're, it sounds like you're defining it as capture and storage and utilization. Are you also talking about marketplaces and offsets? Heaven help us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. I mean, I think all of that. The, yeah. The, what I mean by that is that uh, carbon has been, you know, CO2 has been sort of an exogenous problem, generally speaking, historically, and we need to make it endogenous to everything. And that is going to range from just better accounting of it and visibility into where the emissions come from and how they, how decisions that we as consumers or we as businesses make will affect them. Uh, so there's a, a good chunk of that. So it's just what I call carbon transparency. But then obviously there's uh, the actual emissions themselves that we need to abate. Uh, and as many folks will tell you, you know, the reality is that there's almost no scenario where we get to true zero emissions globally in time. And so we're going to need to remove 
probably billions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere as well. So I consider all of that within this big bucket of it's an industry that if you added it up in aggregate today, all of the tracking and management and actual physical removal and sequestration and so on, sub a billion dollars, probably full scale market today. And if we are to achieve one and a half degrees Celsius of temperature rise, then there's kind of no way it's not like a trillion dollar market in 2050. So, you know, getting from here to there is building that industry from scratch. How, um, well, actually, before I move on to check size, I want to ask you about Maslow's needs, decarbonizing Maslow's basic needs, food and housing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, again, it's a, one of the things that's daunting about mitigating greenhouse gas emissions is that we, um, we produce them in order to do the very most basic things that we need as humans. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think framing it as Maslow's basic needs is good. You're probably familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. The bottom of the pyramid are the things that we need the most. We absolutely cannot survive without. And two of those needs represent big chunks of global greenhouse gas emissions, one being food and the other being shelter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turns out that, as I said, of the five sectors that produce most of the emissions, food and ag is one of them and buildings are another. And so it just gets to the like, the root of the climate change problem is uh, the very basic underpinnings of our modern society. And so that's what makes it so challenging to overcome. Yeah. So really, as you look at this, you're sort of in everything, it sounds like. (laughs) I think about that sometimes. (laughs) Well, this is one of the reasons that climate- So you haven't narrowed this down at all. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the, the, um, the thing that's so tantalizing about climate tech, I think one of the reasons that it's so hot now within Silicon Valley is, you know, in the same way that like Mark Andreessen coined the term software is eating the world long ago, uh, you can easily imagine, uh, greenhouse gas emissions mitigation eating the world over the next few decades because you add up those sectors, every single one of them that I mentioned is, you know, globally a multi-trillion dollar sector. So it's it's not hard to get to massive total adjustable markets for any significant climate mitigation technology. And so it's, it, you know, it's tantalizing from that perspective, just because it's, there's such big opportunities. Mm-hmm. The, I, I think about it sometimes, the only like big economic sectors that I think are kind of orthogonal, like not really related to to climate tech or like healthcare, basically pharmaceutical industry and healthcare. Um, but name another really big sector of the economy that isn't going to get touched in a substantial, like a transformative way by decarbonization. I think it's actually yeah. kind of tough. I'm sure that there are massive scope three impacts when you come to pharmaceuticals too. There must be, right? right? Like, like there's everything- chemicals and they all use little plastic tubes. And I mean, there's Yes, we absolutely. may have just spawned a startup, I hope. Well, no, and it's true. And in the process of producing chemicals, uh, you know, there's we use we use a lot of petroleum to produce chemicals and also the actual process, there's process emissions. You know, we tend to yeah. use like natural gas boilers to create steam and stuff like that. So yeah. yeah, maybe it is literally the entire economy. A lot of little like what do they call them? Clay clay claves, the little little ovens. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. Like, cook stuff in. Right. Um, all right. So if you're out there, founders. Yeah, hit me up with your healthcare plus climate deep tech ideas. I mean, it really is. I know. I mean, I sort of keep saying in an only slightly joking way that this is actually a total addressable market of an entire planet. So why are we around with so much crypto? (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. Crypto is going to be affected. I can tell you that for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that's, but that's again, why, uh, why it's sort of a weird sector. Cause again, it's not, um, it's not a single market. It's not a single sector. It's just like, a common challenge faced by basically every sector. Yep. I wonder too, then as, as we look at these as investable opportunities, there is some debate about what parts of this are venture scale and what aren't and what can be accomplished with capitalism versus governments, for example. Um, And I wonder how you think about that. I think there's two different questions in there, right? One of them is this question of, can we do this stuff with venture capital dollars and the constraints that venture capital places on things? And that, I think, you know, that's a remnant of the, what I view as um, sort of misguided lessons from the first clean tech boom and bust a decade ago, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people, the lesson that they took from how that all went down was 
one, this stuff is too capital intensive and isn't a fit for venture capital, and two, that it takes too long and it's not a fit for venture capital. And I don't actually think either of those two things are true mm-hmm. inherently um, for reasons we can get into if you'd like. I would love that. Okay. Well, we, we could do that uh, in a second. The second question, <laughs> though, is that, right, exactly. Part yeah, two. The second question is, is uh, can this be done through pure capitalism? And I, I think nobody would say it can be done through pure capitalism. Like there's uh, the, the, the role of government in particular uh, cannot be overstated as it pertains to global climate change mitigation. It should be the layer that underpins all of these technologies that enables them to come to market that partners with the, the private sector to to accelerate their adoption. And there's, you know, I think equally no realistic path to one and a half degrees or two degrees Celsius that doesn't involve like substantial government intervention across the board. Um, with that said, it also is true that it's not going to be, it can't be government alone um, and that there's an enormous amount that needs to be done by the private sector. So I don't know, I, the, those debates about, uh, about is this a capitalist enterprise fundamentally or anything like that? I sort of feel like you're just beside the point. Like it's, this is all hands on deck and wh- wherever you sit, um, you have a role to play here. Yep. Everybody in the pool. Well, then let's break down these, there's these sort of two historical arguments, which I think you do sometimes still hear that, that, yeah. you know, I mean, you have a 15 year time horizon, for example. Um, although I, I often find myself arguing like, why are you worried about a 10 year time horizon? Cause we need solutions to happen a lot sooner than 10 years. Um, we do. We need to do, there's some things we need to do yesterday. Yep. Uh, and there's some things that we're going to need to do in five years. Right. And there's some things probably we're going to need to do in 10 or 15 years as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so timeline and capital intensity, those are the two mm-hmm. big lessons. First of all, timeline, um, you know, things take a long time in lots of sectors. Like pharmaceuticals, another good example of it could be a really long drug development can be can be a really slow process and can take a very long time for a drug to come to market. Uh, the reason that it's investable and that everybody's fine with it is uh, that the promise on the other side, if the, the opportunity is big enough and the risk profile is well understood enough, the pathway to commercialization is clear enough, um, then you can do a risk reward calculus and you can say, well, it is going to take a little bit longer, but uh, if it works, it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is increasingly true in the you know big swaths of this climate tech arena too, where you some of these solutions, at least the ones that are tackling really big problems, the prize is big enough that it justifies the the time that it's going to take to come to market. And the second thing is it can come to market faster now than it used to be able to for a bunch of reasons. One is technological, like we just have tools we didn't have a while ago. So, you know, we can iterate faster, we could scale faster, we can do design on a computer rather than having to iterate physically on everything all the time. Uh, and the second is that the, there's just a ready and willing and salivating buyer universe for basically any technology that is a decarbonized alternative to a traditional solution or process, as long as it is cost competitive or better for some other reason. So if you can check those boxes, you know, everybody will line up to buy your stuff today. And that's much more true today than it was than it was a decade ago. So I think for those reasons, you know, timeline is important, but um, I don't think I think that we can we can make significant enough change at a global scale with the the technologies that are going to be coming to the market over the next couple of years within this decade that it should meet a venture capital timeline. What about capital intensive? So this stuff is capital intensive generally. Yeah. Yeah, Like that part is true. But the question is, is that inherently a problem? Again, there are other things that are also capital intensive too. The reasons why. Yeah. Turns out, turns out that really absolutely. Turns out an app based marketplace phenomenally capital intensive. Yeah. Yeah. And just look at, you know, Tiger's writing, you know, multi hundred million dollar checks into software companies literally multiple times a day. It's not like that stuff is not capital intensive. Um, The, you know, so it, what you need in order for that capital intensity of a an early stage opportunity to be attractive nonetheless is, one, you need to have some measure of certainty that the capital will be there. That was something that wasn't true last cycle, right? Mm-hmm. We, we had, there's been an absolute flood of late stage capital into the climate tech space over the past couple of years, whether it be these massive growth funds that like TPG Rise has a $7 billion fund they have to deploy focused on climate. And there's a bunch of those. So that stuff all the way through infrastructure capital. Um, so you can be pretty confident that if you're 
if your technology is proven and it pencils uh, and you know there's a buyer on the other side of it, you can capitalize it even up to really big amounts of money. Commonwealth Fusion Systems raised a $1.8 billion round, right? Yeah, that's been For a fusion reactor. I'm just um, sorry I did not have this job in time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the capital will be there. Um, and then the size of the prize needs to be big enough because if you are going to raise a lot of capital and especially if you're going to raise capital at an up round every single time, at the end of the day, it is true that you're going to have a uh, you can have a preference stack that is pretty big and, you know, your investors are going to demand a really, really high outcome uh, exit valuation. And so you, you've got to be, I think what, what it has done for me is it has refocused me on if this is a capital intensive business, the opportunity set needs to be huge. You can't compromise on that because otherwise those two things will end up mismatched. So you're saying... If you're doing deep science, it better be able to solve something at the gigaton scale. Or yeah. if you're, you know, or it better be fusion where it changes everything, kind of. Well, uh, it better be, I think it better be a gigaton is a good, um, is a good proxy for, you know, multi billion dollar scale, which is really what you have to be thinking about. You're going after a really big sector. The, mm -hmm. the TAM is huge. Uh, as long as that is true and the thing that you are doing is going to transform that sector if it really works, then it's a big enough prize that it justifies a, you know, something that basically is going to have to build manufacturing capacity. And so it's going to be expensive to do. Right. We're talking at a moment when our industry is starting to consider whether valuations are going to come down, whether there's going to, whether it's going to be harder to raise money. And I was having a conversation the other day with a friend about climate investing and, and my, hopeful view, at least, is that this will not be seen as optional in a downturn. Um, I wonder how you imagine LPs and investors, though, thinking about this going forward. Like, if things tighten up, what are we going to stop funding? And hopefully it's not climate. I think that both things can be true. I think that, you know, in an environment where there is tightening generally, that obviously will affect this sector as it will affect others. I also think that there's a specific thing that is not exclusive to climate tech, but climate tech is probably disproportionately affected by it, which is uh, climate tech companies were among the biggest beneficiaries of the brief but wild SPAC boom. And, uh, you know, we, we, I've just for fun have this like uh, Google Finance tracker uh, that I monitor that I call SPAC track. That's like 35 climate tech companies that have de-SPAC'd. Right. It's a big, that's a big number for yeah. this sector. Um, that window has largely closed, although not entirely closed. And so, and those companies, many of them, though not all of them, were still, you know, pre revenue, pre product, pre commercial. And so, some of what was happening in the private market during that time was sort of, you'd see a lot of companies for a little while who were saying, well, we're raising a pre SPAC round, which was usually a red flag for me in the first place, but it did happen in a bunch of cases. And so, hmm. These companies that were expecting a, a relatively near-term public market outcome, despite not having a product yet, those are the ones that are probably going to be hurt the most. Um, with that said, you know, climate tech is a relative, unfortunately, because we this problem isn't going away anytime soon, it's, it's a long-term secular trend. And if you believe that the world will, first of all, get worse before it gets better, and so the, the problem will become more apparent, and second of all, that we will we will remain become increasingly serious about uh, adopting solutions, then you probably will see some ups and downs in, in valuation along with the broader market, but uh, it, you won't see the kind of collapse in the sector that we saw in clean tech in 2012, 2013. Yeah. I mean, I think that might be partly what I'm alluding to. Like, it's not all going to go away. That's not going to happen again. That's I mean, I would be incredibly again. surprised yep. if like the world just sort of, if, if investors got turned off by climate tech two years from now because valuations started to get shaky, right? It's, we're not, investors are not going to turn away from enterprise software just because valuations are down there too. Right. Well, the weather alone, not to oversimplify, would suggest that that wouldn't be a good plan. Yeah, right. Um, what is, before I ask you about the podcast, what is, what are the nuts and bolts? What's your check size? Like what kinds of companies, you know, what, what stage are you looking at? Yeah. So within this, this fund, which is our frontier fund, um, the focus is, you know, sort of the intersection of deep tech and climate. So we're looking for 
revolutionary technologies that can meaningfully contribute to climate change mitigation. Uh, we're investing early stage from a technology development standpoint. So we're looking for something that, you know, is not just an idea on paper. We'd like there to be some technical validation, at least at small scale in the lab, uh, but not yet fully commercial and mature and at scale in the market. So if you're familiar with like the TRL scale, um, which it was popularized by NASA a very long time ago, and now it's been adopted by the scientific community as like a proxy for how advanced the technology is. It's a one to nine scale. One is basically an idea on a napkin. Nine is at scale in the market, fully commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of three to eight, right? Okay. Uh, so yeah. there's some proof, but it's not ready yet for the market. From a, a venture capital stage perspective, that can vary. It tends to mean we invest at seed or series A, but we've made some exceptions to go uh, both earlier and later, uh, depending on the situation. Again, we care more about technology maturity than anything else. But seed and series A is sort of the sweet spot. Uh, check size uh, can range sort of anywhere from initial check, anywhere from like two to fifteen million dollars, uh, depending on the situation. And we uh, reserve a fairly large amount for follow-on, so we intend to follow on with uh, with companies that we think have continued promise. And you know, we we recognize that it's going to particularly in this kind of deep tech world, these are, as we said, capital intensive enterprises generally, and they take some time and we recognize that we think it's worth it. So we want to continue to support the companies as they develop. What are you super into right now? Or, you know, what, what's in your portfolio that you're most excited about? Are you in that fusion company? I can't remember. Not in Commonwealth Fusion, but we are in a fusion company. Yeah, we're in a company called Zap Energy, which is a really cool approach to nuclear fusion that is probably not worth getting into what's different about it now. But um, yeah, I mean, so we've invested, we've got, uh, 10 companies soon to be 12 in the portfolio now equally excited about all of them, obviously. Yes. Um, totally. <laughs> but you know, if you want to name a couple that I think are, are particularly cool, form energy is a good one to talk about. Batteries. So batteries. I'm obsessed with batteries. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Lots of reasons to be obsessed with batteries. Most of the reasons to be obsessed with batteries have to do with lithium ion batteries. Uh, but there's a few use cases where lithium ion lithium ion batteries are incredible and they're going to take over the world um, almost entirely. But there's a few use cases where they will not take over the world. And specifically, the main one that that we've been focused on is uh, you know as you add more and more renewables to the grid, you face all these challenges to do with their intermittency. Um, the obvious one is what happens on a daily basis when the sun sets. That's what lithium ion is well suited to helping to solve. Uh, but you also start to face challenges on longer time horizons. So what happens if you have a cloudy week when you are on a very solar reliant grid, or if you take it to its extreme, uh, we generate three times as much solar in the summer as we do in the winter here in California. So if you're in a very uh, solar heavy grid, like you have seasonal challenges you face as you get to really high penetrations. And so uh, you're going to need a different kind of battery to solve that sort of thing. Batteries that last hundreds of hours, not not four to eight hours, which is typical for lithium ion. Form Energy uh, has a technology that is going to do that. And the way the economics work out, if you're trying to use a battery for hundreds of hours at a time, is it only makes any economic sense if the capital cost of the battery is about an order of magnitude less than lithium ion. So about a tenth the cost. That It has to be that cheap from a capital perspective for it to make sense. Um, wow. So that's what Form is doing. So their batteries are, are incredibly cheap relative to lithium ion. That allows them to operate them for super long durations. And are they iron-based or is that, am I thinking of a different company? They are, right? No, you got it. It's iron yeah. air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the iron yeah. is the anode material, air is the cathode. I did a, a documentary podcast series called How We Survive about lithium extraction and battery technology. Um digging into some of those no pun intended mining projects and the geothermal stuff in the salton sea and we oh, cool. geeked out pretty heavily toward the later part of the season about different kinds of battery tech <laughs> yeah battery world is totally fascinating it is completely like it's weirdly everything yeah um i don't want you to diss any sector but i wonder like there are there are a lot of new brand new myself included climate tech investors like a lot of people coming to venture to do this job and and i've sort of been asking everybody in this series like what should we not waste time on honestly i think i'm gonna get so much hate for this so i have to word it carefully sorry (laughs) um i hear i wouldn't it's not that i think this is a total waste of time but i think you can wait a year before you start trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the crypto climate nexus 
Uh, I don't think there's any reason unless you're already, a, you know, like deeply embedded in crypto world. I don't think there's any reason that you need to deal with it today um, because it is, you know, there, there's a bunch of interesting projects going on there that some of which, you know, have the potential to, to do something new, particularly around carbon markets, but it is a mess. There, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's not that hard to spin up one of these projects. There's so many of them. They're all tackling different versions and every early iteration has like a lot of hair on it. Um, and so I would wait for that to shake out a little bit before I really dig into it because it's a, it's a heavy investment to try to get involved in that stuff. I mean, and to be fair, most of them I consider to be almost like an anti-offset. So certainly some of the early iterations, I mean, there's actual evidence carbon plan had this good report recently of, um, what we've seen through Klimadao, which is like the main, the one that's probably garnered the most attention so far. And, and, you know, for, I think they, they had a good idea in, in part, which was we will, we'll use this protocol and this DAO to basically buy up the floor. We'll sweep the floor of the carbon market, um, of projects that are verified in the Vera standard. So we'll take all the bad stuff out of the market. That'll raise prices in the market, which did kind of happen for a bit. Uh, and then that'll make the, the buyers have to pay more for higher quality stuff. But instead it, that, that's, that was assuming there's a fixed supply of offsets. Um, but instead what happened is that a bunch of projects that were not generating offsets because it wasn't worth it to them suddenly started generating offsets. And these are projects that are like a hydroelectric project that's been operating for 15 years and doesn't need the credits. Right. And so it, it turns out that it's actually, and I, I'll say I have strong opinions about this because, um, early in my career, I was doing origination and trading of carbon credits and like mm-hmm. the first wave of that stuff. So I have an appreciation for how complicated it is, like really complex market, really difficult to make it robust and transparent and all the th- trustworthy, all the things that you really need. And so the projects, the crypto projects that just come in and think like, oh, I can, I'm going to, I'm going to put this in a ledger and make it tradable and fungible and transparent. And hey, I've solved all the the carbon market problems, I think they're just like missing the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Well, I will not bait you anymore on that topic, even though I want to. Um, what? Tell, then tell me about the podcast. I got very excited to see two climate focused podcasts launch effectively at the same time, Carbon Copy and then your show, Catalyst. Um, what was the what was the genesis of that? And how are you enjoying it? Were you a podcaster before? Yeah, I was. So the Catalyst is sort of the new incarnation of a podcast that I'd been doing for uh, six or seven years before that, even that was called The Interchange. The The backstory has to do with sort of my career uh, trajectory, which was prior to EIP, prior to being on the investing side, I ran a firm called GTM Research, which was a market analysis firm, part of a company called Green Tech Media. We were focused on sort of tracking and forecasting the future of, of clean tech at the time, what became climate tech. Um, and, you know, so our job was to sell our expertise and we were sort of a combined digital media company and, and market analyst firm. And so we had a whole media platform. Um, as part of that, we launched podcasts and one of them was this one called the interchange that was sort of intended to be the, like, you know, the way that I think about it is like our target audience knows what a kilowatt hour is already. Um, so it's not for the layperson, and uh, we don't shy away from getting into the wonk cause I can't avoid that hard as I try. Um, but uh, but that, you know, sort of explains the complexities of what's going on in this whole space. So I'd been doing that for a long time. Uh, we sold the company, GTM, to to Wood McKenzie, in, which is a big Scotland-based energy data and analytics firm. And in 2016, kept doing the podcast for a few years after that. But eventually, it was time to move on. But fortunately, most of the team from the media side of GTM had since left and joined Canary Media, which is... Um, owned by the Rocky Mountain Institute and is this cool nonprofit newsroom focused on this space. So we teamed up with them and basically just relaunched uh, a new podcast that with a new name, but doing a similar kind of thing, trying to get into the kind of nuances of climate tech. Gotcha. Well, it totally worked because I discovered your pre-existing podcast for the first time that way. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I mean, look, however you discovered it, I'm happy. Exactly. Is it related to EIP at all? I mean, I... I <laughs> it's interesting. Like I, EIP is my job. Like yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm an investor in deep tech climate stuff for EIP. That is what I spend 120% of my waking hours thinking about. And so the podcast is naturally aligned with that. And that, you know, the topics on the podcast are the things that I am thinking about day to day, which are what the, exactly the things that we are investing in. Mm-hmm. So it aligns perfectly for that exact reason. But the podcast itself is uh, sponsored by Canary Media. Right. 
and I would imagine, I mean, for the same reason that we do this week in startups and this week in climate startups, I would imagine it is useful for you in terms of deal flow. Like everyone has to be a brand. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And the other way that I think about it is like, um, the, the, I don't know how you do this, but the way that I generate uh, topic ideas is it is literally like um, I'm looking for the, the perfect episode for me is something that I know is important and I just have not had the time to like fully understand. I couldn't walk through the narrative of it. Like we just recorded an episode on on battery minerals uh, this morning where I got into like the nuances of, oh, what's going to happen with nickel demand when we sh if we shift from NMC batteries to LFP batteries? And it's the kind of thing that has been bouncing around in the back of my head for a while, but I just haven't dedicated the time to. And so the podcast is just a perfect way to project to the universe, like a thing that I'm interested in. And what comes back to me is a whole bunch of stuff, deal flow for sure. But in addition to that, just other people who are smart and who know more about me or more than me about that topic. So I, I love it as a, just a learning mechanism in addition to being deal flow. It's really like, it's the best way to, instead of sitting around reading white papers, just get somebody to tell you. <laughs> in addition to reading white papers. In addition to reading That's white right. papers, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to, as a quick follow-up before I let you go, is there m room for more of the EIP model in terms of um, corporate LPs? Like that sort of feels like, it sort of feels like every every company should be doing a version of that. Like they all need this. Why aren't they all just spinning up funds like crazy? Or are they? Some of them are. Um, a lot of them are finding opportunities to work with with folks like us to, you know, sort of collaborate with each other and get a bigger platform. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that um, investing is one thing that every large corporate should do. There's a variety of other things too, right? It's becoming clear that if you are a big corporate, you need to figure out how to uh, do really good emissions accounting. You need to set science-based targets. You need to have a clear roadmap for how you're going to achieve those targets. You then need to like operationalize that within your organization. And you need visibility into the next generation of technologies that are going to help you achieve those things. And so there's like a portfolio of stuff that should be falling under the how do we deal with climate change within our organization bucket uh, that I think of, of EIP or whatever other equivalent being kind of one one spoke in that wheel. Shale, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, on how Twitter. How much would you like them to find you? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> depends, depends what they're doing. Um, if they're super cool, they can... They can definitely find me on Twitter. I'm at Shale Khan. Uh, they can email me if they really have something awesome going on in the Deep Tech Plus Climate Nexus. Uh, my email address is my last name at energyimpactpartners.com. I, I may or may not regret that. I know. That was really bold of you. You I can know. email us later if you want and be like, I changed my mind. I, I regret that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not making any promises to respond to everything, but exactly. I want to see cool stuff. Um, exactly. Yeah, those are the what places to find What do you wish me. someone would email you about? What's the like, if you could order up the cool company that doesn't exist yet, but you want it to exist? Other than the pharmaceutical startup yeah, yet pharmaceutical to be developed, startup. yeah. Um, I might have to put more thought into it. I can't give you a specific answer. I mean, I could say the type of thing that I get really excited about is when somebody emails me or gets introduced to me or something like that and says like, look, I have been uh I, i've been thinking about this problem as it pertains to climate for a really long time because it is thorny and nobody else has solved it and i and i've put all the thought into it i've done all the customer and market discovery that i need to do and i think i found the solution and here's what it looks like mm -hmm. um what i don't like is people who are like hey i uh i don't know i think that like this technology is cool and it should seems like it should have a big impact on climate but but i don't know yet um that's that's less exciting i, I like people who've really done the, the legwork shell khan also just in his copious spare time host of the podcast catalyst thanks so much for coming on thank you for having me i'm a big fan of your uh your show as well so it's nice to nice to swap notes on it totally and we can swap companies now yes. that we know yeah let's let's do it yeah totally i got i got i got a couple super nerdy things that i need to yeah <laughs> talk okay. someone smarter about <laughs> there's another way to, there's another way to put the stuff that really gets me excited it's like uh <laughs> combination of super nerdy and like oh my god that would be like that's wild
yeah. <laughs> you know, like the like, any, but what if it works metric, which yeah, we've been called like, like well, whoa, that is ambitious. Like, I like works, that kind it of changes thing. everything. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. this weird company that I, I've been bouncing around that's trying to genetically engineer bacteria to consume carbon dioxide and excrete textiles like thread, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yep. that, that appeared, the consensus seems to be they're headed for a scientific lift that they're just not totally aware of. Mm-hmm. But I just can't get them out of my head because I'm like, yeah, but what if it works? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the like CO2 to value stuff is kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, like one of them's going to hit. Yeah, maybe. probably. Maybe. There's an interesting question there as to do we need to be turning CO2 into value or should we just be like, or or do the, from a climate perspective, the size of the sink, the the total amount of CO2 that you could use to yeah. create textiles may not be that big from a global emissions perspective. This is right. kind of the argument against the like uh, CO2 cured concrete stuff, for example. Um, but it's true. But then but, is it offset by the amount of, by the industry you could replace? Yeah, maybe. Right. That's maybe. what makes a bigger difference. Right. Like right. if it's a big solution for that sector, then it could still be a big business. Yep. Are you, do you know the Magrathia metals guys? Yeah. that's a, You know, that's Alex, right? So funny. That's exactly who I was thinking of when I was like, the ones that I love are the ones where you're like, whoa. Yes. I was thinking of Alex specifically. Really? That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, I love. So Alex, I met through the pie. He was a source on how we survive. And sure, we just yeah, kept in touch ever stuff. since. And yeah, I yeah. literally was like, I'm so close to putting my own money into that company, but I'm going to wait for their Series A. It's, it's, it's bananas. Um, it's bananas. But it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I agree with you. Yep. Okay, cool. All right, good. I see the thesis. Yeah. I, will, I will be in touch. Hey, everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to the syndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS syndicate. And you can join Jason's syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at the syndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? Check out OpenScouting.com, where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey everybody, producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at Remote Demo Day com. Our next event is on April 27th. And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 